Have we gone back to the 1970s? If there's a new Lotus Esprit, an MG Roadster soon to hit the market, we may have. And what inspires, encourages, and motivates a young boy's interest in small, foreign sports cars? Find out in Episode 6. Welcome to the Classic Sports Car. A tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. Welcome to another edition of the Classic Sports Car. I'm Tom Dunn, who for over 30 years now has been turning keys, turning wrenches, and turning over rocks and pages to buy, repair, and to learn all about classic sports cars. In this episode, I want to give you the backstory, some of the history behind my motivation and interest in what I'm now referring to as classic sports cars from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But before we get into those stories, I want to bring you a little news. Once again, we're going to talk about some current manufacturers who are related, connected to the classic sports car world, and some interesting information and models that they may be coming out with very soon. So I've got an article from autocar.co.uk that indicates that a new Lotus Esprit may be coming in 2021. Now, if you look at the current lineup of Lotus models, that includes the Exige and the Elise, and they share a platform, which is around 25 years old. And the third car in the Lotus lineup is the Evora, and that's about 12 years old. Now, unfortunately, not all three of these are sold currently in the U.S., but coming down the road, hopefully there will be some changes. See, there's a new platform coming out from Lotus, which includes plans for a number of new models. Now, when I talk about a platform of an automobile, I'm talking about kind of a set of shared common design or engineering or production efforts, as well as major components. So maybe it's a drivetrain, or maybe it's the, the chassis, the frame, the suspension, some component, some element, some group of parts that can be shared across multiple models. And just about all car manufacturers do that these days for cost-saving purposes. So with Lotus is planning a new platform to be coming out in a couple of years and a number of new designs that will be attached to that. Now this does not include their current or soon to be released, depending upon who you listen to, uh, their custom hypercar, the Evaya, the entire electric 1,000 horsepower, 2 million pound supercar. So that's a little different scenario. But before this new platform arrives in a couple of years, supposedly one more model is being planned on the old platform. And Autocar is indicating that that car could be called the Esprit. Now, if you remember the original Lotus Esprit that was launched in 1975 at the Paris Motor Show, and it lasted until 2004. It was probably most famous for being the submarine car of James Bond in The Spy Who Loved Me. Now, this new Esprit, which Lotus might be coming out with, Autocar predicts that the engine could be a Toyota-sourced V6 with a Lotus-developed hybrid system attached to it. The Autocar predicts the output to be in excess of 500 horsepower, it to be mid-engined, a two-seat vehicle, and will continue with the traditional Lotus theme of lightness and simplicity. Now, there's a lot of hope around the Lotus brand these days, especially since majority ownership was purchased just a couple years ago by Geely, 
which is a Chinese company, actually the same company that purchased a majority ownership in Volvo a few years prior to picking up Lotus. And we've seen what Volvo has been able to do with that injection of capital from the Chinese company and how they've brought a whole number of new and some say very exciting vehicles and kind of injected new life into Volvo. So there's a lot of hope that Geely's connection and ownership and dollars available for Lotus will do something similar to what's been done with Volvo. So there might just be an opportunity to purchase another Lotus Esprit and bring back some of the memory and history and excitement of that car from many decades ago. Now, another old British sports car name that you should be familiar with, MG, potentially has a new roadster coming out. Once again, this is from Autocar. They state, the new MG Cyberster concept is an electric two-seat roadster. Autocar indicates that over on the website of MG Motor UK's Chinese parent firm, SAIC, that there are images of a two-door roadster. Now, they appear to be artistic renderings, suggesting the Cyberster concept may be at an early stage, but they do indicate that key features include a long bonnet, a sharply raked rear end, and illuminated MG badges. No specific details of any production intent has been released, but the Cyberster is said to feature 5G connectivity technology and level three autonomous driving features. There's also no indication of what will power this concept yet, but it's obvious it'll be some type of electric power plant. Now, most of us remember MG as the manufacturer that really started the sports car craze right after World War II and carried on through the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Well, over the decades, MG has gone through a handful of different owners. Starting in the late 60s, they were incorporated into the BMC, the British Motor Company, and then a little bit later, British Leyland picked them up, and they really kind of came to an end at about 1980. That's the last year of the MGB, probably the car that most of us would say kind of ended that whole classic sports car era. There were still some MG models after the 1980 time period because Rover acquired the name and pretty much just had some of their cars rebadged with the MG name. When Rover collapsed in 2005, the Chinese automaker Nanjing Automobile acquired both the Rover MG plant and the MG name for just under $100 million. And then in 2007, Nanjing Automobile unveiled the first MG vehicle manufactured in China. And they had an MG TF, an MG3, an MG7, and they have been manufacturing cars in China under the MG name since about 2007. Now they did manufacture some of them in Britain for a number of years, but they closed down that plant. And now they are entirely imported in from China. Their numbers had never been really that significant. Back in 2012, they only sold 782 vehicles in the UK, but that slowly began to increase. And in 2014, they had a 361% increase in sales. And now it's stated that they are one of the fastest growing vehicles being imported into Great Britain. So maybe down the road, we will see a new MG Roadster 
although powered by an electric power plant. So I don't know how that connects to the original heritage of the MG cars, but hey, it might be bringing a new Roadster back onto the market. And maybe we can pretend that we are back in the 70s with an MG Roadster and a Lotus Esprit available to us to drive on down the road. What inspires and motivates a young boy to have an interest and a passion in small, lightweight, nimble, and oftentimes underpowered foreign cars, oftentimes in contrast to what a lot of the other boys his age or in his neighborhood are interested in? Well, this is my story. Over the next couple of podcasts, I'm going to give you some of the history of my car ownership and kind of point to different things that interested me, motivated me, and inspired me at a young age to follow this passion. Now, a lot of times you can point to one single instance that inspired or changed the perspective of someone and said, from that point on, I knew I was going to someday drive this kind of a car. For me, it was a number of different things over a number of years that really helped shape this interest. But it really goes back to my elementary school days when I was a young kid. Now, I grew up in Southern California in a very traditional middle-class track home neighborhood. On my street, there were seven houses, and our house was right in the middle. So we had three houses to the left and three houses to the right. When I went to school, whether I was walking to elementary school or riding my bicycle, and even when I went to junior high school and then high school, I had to go the same way. So I walked down to the end of my street, and I made a left turn. And the house that was on the corner of my street was a source for a lot of this inspiration. See, there were two boys that lived there that were probably 8 and 10 years older than me. That's my best estimate. And their driveway and garage were often filled with small two-seat British sports cars, primarily Triumphs. And I'd go past that house every day on the way to school. And oftentimes in the afternoon, when I was in elementary school, I'd often see these two boys working on their cars. And what I really remember inspiring me was the sounds that I heard. And it wasn't necessarily the sounds from the exhaust. Now, when they did start them up and fire up the engines, those were pretty interesting sounds for me. But oftentimes it was the sound of their tools coming from their garage or underneath the car or from under the hood, the sound of their ratchets, their screwdrivers, maybe a hammer, maybe a a drill or a grinder in the garage. And it was that sense of these guys were fixing, repairing, returning something back to its original condition. And I remember as a kid going, oh, when I get old enough to have a car, that's what I want to do. I would love to get something that needs some work that I can have a a reason to own and use tools and put back together. So I'm not quite sure if it was the desire to work and repair something or the fact that these were really cool small cars that looked a little bit different from everything else. But the combination of those two things and seeing them on a regular basis really shaped and influenced me. Now these two brothers named Ron and Dave had a constant flow of triumphs in their driveway, whether they were TR4s, 6s, 3s, Spitfires, 
there was always two, sometimes even three cars there. Now, I got to know Dave a number of years later when he actually opened up a repair shop. He had his own garage, and when I bought my first car, my Triumph, I ended up taking it to him for quite a bit. I really didn't know him too well as a young boy because they were older than me, and I didn't have any older brothers, anyone that really hung out with them. So I just knew them as the guys that lived down at the end of the street and worked on cars all the time. But Dave later on told me the story that when he bought his first Triumph, he was only 15 years old, and he didn't even have his driver's license yet. Now, it was just the two of them and their mom. I believe their father had passed away when they were younger. So it was just the three of them, and I didn't see the mom much. I got the impression that she was working quite a bit trying to support the family and raise her two sons. But he tells me his mom was just furious at him for buying a car when he didn't even have a driver's license. Well, he said he took that car and he did some of the repairs on it, and a few weeks later he turned it around and sold it. And I'm not quite certain exactly how much he made, but for some reason the number 800 or 1500 sticks in my mind. And when his mom found out that he'd made that much money in just a couple of weeks, he said she never questioned another one of his car purchases, even prior to him getting his driver's license. So for him and his brother, that's what they did to earn money in high school. They didn't work at the fast food restaurant. They didn't work at the garage down the street. They bought, sold, repaired. They were, they were flippers. They were flipping Triumph sports cars. Now, if you went a little bit further down that block, there was a cul-de-sac that veered off to the left, and there was another boy, another teenage boy, about the same age. I think he was in the same class as Ron and Dave. And he was also into both the Triumphs, and I think he also might have had an MG or two in his ownership. And that was the route that when I got a little bit older and had a paper route that I would ride my bike. So I'd go past the house in the garage on the way home from school, and I'd get my papers all folded and get on my bike, and I'd ride past them again, and often saw triumphs in his driveway. And at the end of the cul-de-sac and going back down to the main street, there was one other house, and that's where Jim lived. Now, Jim, I believe he was retired at the time, or he was, at least for a young boy, that retirement age. And he had this beautiful MGB that sat on the side of his house, right next to the sidewalk. And it was this deep British racing green. And Jim was kind of the mentor to the other boys in the neighborhood because I often saw him at their house or in their garage or the boys going down to his place to get some advice to figure out how to do things. So between Jim and then Ron and Dave and the other boy down the street, I had a constant exposure to both MGs and Triumphs. And I remember that was what I was going to do when I got old enough. I wanted to buy an old Triumph and get some tools and repair it and fix it up and bring it back to its original condition and have that be my car. Now, during this time when I was in elementary school and I would ride my bike to school, to get to the bike rack, this fenced-in, caged area where we had to park our bikes, we had to ride our bikes past the faculty parking lot. And inside the faculty parking lot, there was always two cars I was looking out for, hoping they were there by the time I rode past. And one was another Triumph, this one a TR7. And the second car that I always admired was a Fiat X19. Now, I will admit, looking back, that these weren't really great cars to aspire to. But I also realized, as a young kid, when you first start developing that love for cars, oftentimes it's really the look the design, the aesthetic of the car that really influences you. 
I've got two young boys right now, six and soon to be eight. And what excites them about cars that they see is what they look like. The fact that one might have 100 more horsepower than the other, or it's zero to 60 time, or it's top speed, oftentimes has a secondary or lower level of influence compared to what the cars look like. And for me, it was that shape. It was that small two-seat car. And with the 7 TR7 and the X19, they were both very similar in design and shape, kind of this wedge shape, the X19 being a mid-engine. And the TR7, at least at one point in its design, had been considered to, uh, to be a mid-engine car, although it was eventually had the engine put in the front. So both of those had a very similar shape and style to it. And I always look forward to seeing that, along with the MG Midget that Mr. Gardner, my fifth and sixth grade teacher, drove. So there was MGs and Triumphs, TR6s, TR7s, TR4s, Fiat X19s, MGBs, MG Midgets that were constantly being observed by me as I rode back and forth to school, walked to school, delivered my newspapers in the neighborhood. So that had a really big influence on me. Another big influence in my car history was the vacation we took when I was 12 years old. And we hopped in the station wagon and five of the six of us took a month-long trip around the U.S. And we visited all the major tour spots, Washington, D.C., New York City, Philadelphia, Niagara Falls. And we ended up spending close to two weeks in Wisconsin. Now, my dad was from Wisconsin, and every couple summers, he would try to take the family back to visit his parents and all the uncles and aunts. Well, one of my cousins had married, and her husband, Steve, had a 1974 Corvette Stingray. Now, this was a blue Stingray with a T-top, and I was only 12 years old at the time, but this car looked fantastic. And he gave me a ride in it one afternoon. And to say that was memorable would be an understatement. Here was a warm Wisconsin summer afternoon, T-top off, cruising through the rural Dairyland and the back roads of Wisconsin. Well, cruising really doesn't define what we did. We were flying. I remember talking about that ride for months and months after I returned from that trip and how fast we were going and the acceleration of the speed, the wind in your hair, and just the performance of that car. Now, one thing that was actually quite annoying was one of my sisters had turned 16 the year before, and she had her driver's license. So she got to drive a little bit on the trip. And when Steve found out that she had her driver's license, he let her drive his Corvette. So here it was. My older sister got a chance to drive this flashy, fast sports car. And all I get to do is sit in the passenger seat. Although I did get to sit in the driver's seat just for a minute or two to get a picture, but the car wasn't moving. You can take a look at that picture on the website, theclassicsportscar.com. If we fast forward a few more years to my high school days, one of my very best friends in high school was really into racing. Now, he had two older brothers, and both of them were very much into cars. One had a 1969 Camaro Z28, which he ended up tearing apart to restore and never quite finished it. I think he actually sold it before he got it put back together. And I'm sure he's kind of regretting that now with the prices that the 69 Z28s are going for. But that was, that was quite a beast. I remember riding in that a couple of times 
with uh, with my friend who had borrowed it from his brother. And that thing, uh, let's just say it was quite powerful and very loud and vibrated quite a bit. But his other brother had a Porsche 914. Once again, one of those small two-seat mid-engine cars. And that was, for a high school kid, the handling of that was what really stood out. Now, my friend Brian was, like I said, really into racing. So we would go off into Riverside International Raceway when it was still up and running in Southern California. We'd go to the enduro races, the six-hour, the 12-hour races, and watch the Porsches and the 280Zs and a number of the other sports cars of that era race around. So that was a big influence and factor also. But probably an even more valuable was an opportunity I got to ride in a really small and underpowered Fiat, of all things. So I was at a high school football game, and I needed to ride home. And there was a guy that was on the track and cross-country team that I competed on, and he had an old Fiat 850. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, that the 850 refers to the engine size. It was only 850 cc, so less than a liter. And it was a two-seat convertible rear engine. So the engine sat right behind the driver. And I remember him offering to take me home because he lived not too far from where I lived. And it was a Saturday evening, and we hopped in the car and I could barely fit in it. And he's about to turn the key, and he's pulling out the choke, and he's kind of feathering the, the, the gas pedal, turning the key. List, we're listening to that thing, try to turn over, pulling on the choke some more, feathering the accelerator, finally got it fired up. And that sound of that engine right behind us, similar to the 914, was, was really something that I took note of. And just watching him try to get this car going, he was really engaged in it. He had to really work it. He finally got the car kind of warmed up, and he was once again feathering the, the choke in and out to get the right mixture of fuel and air, and then putting it in gear and gradually pulling out the clutch and f getting it on the road. And we didn't go very fast. The thing didn't go very fast at all because it was so small, and that engine was right behind us, and we were so low to the ground. It felt like we were going much faster than we were. But what really impressed me or really caught my notice was just how much he had to work by uh, work in driving the car. And once again, I didn't see that in many of the other cars that friends of mine or my parents drove. So that, once again, another influencer. So combining all of these elements, by the time I got to the point of ready to purchase my first car, it was right before I graduated from high school. And I had made up my mind I was going to get something small, two-seat, hopefully that needed a little work so I could get some tools and work on it. Now, the first car that I went and took a look at was a TR4, Triumph TR4. And this car was in pretty good shape. It really didn't need anything, which I think might have been an influence for me not buying it. I had a little experience driving stick. I had worked at a convenience store at that time, and they had an old, I don't know if it was a Dodge or a Ford delivery van kind of the Econo line type, and it had a three on the tree, so a three-speed column shift. And since I knew how to drive a little bit of stick from my friend Brian letting me drive some of his and his brother's cars, I always was the one that got stuck having to drive that van when we made some deliveries. And that was really my only experience with driving stick. And so when I was driving this TR4, it felt like the clutch really had to go all the way to the firewall before it would either engage or disengage. And I thought, well, you know what? 
I don't think that clutch is just right. It's probably going to go out. So mm, clutches, that's not something I really want to dive into. So I made that as an excuse for not purchasing that first TR4 that I looked at. So I continued to look around. The next car I looked at was a Datsun Roadster. So very similar in nature to the Triumph and the MGs. And this was, I believe, a 68-1600. And that was another car that was on my list, although not on the top of the list. I really wanted to get a Triumph. But there weren't too many around at that point that were available in the price range that I could afford. So I looked at that Datsun, and I really liked it. The one problem was it wouldn't start. The battery was dead. And the guy who was selling it didn't have a means of recharging it. And I think also had a flat tire, so we couldn't drive it at that point. He said, well, let me get the tire fixed, and I'll get the battery charged, and then you can call me back and take a look at it. I never followed up on that. Instead, I spotted a 64 Triumph TR4 that had been parked not too far from where I live, outside the local auto parts store. It just been sitting in the parking lot for a couple weeks, and I had noticed it and kind of looked at it a couple times, and it was really kind of ratty on the inside. It didn't have a top at the time, and the carpeting was in bad shape. The seats were in bad shape. So initially, I was thinking, you know what, that's not really the condition I want to go. I do want to do some work, but I don't think I want to do that much work. Well, after I looked at the first TR4 and then the 1600 and still not convinced, I kept going back to that ratty TR4 that was parked outside the auto parts store. And as days and the weeks go by, I decided I was going to follow up on that. So I called the owner up, arranged to take it for a little test drive. And lo and behold, I ended up buying that car for $1,000. And it was just a couple of days before I graduated from high school in the early 1980s. So my first car ended up being a brown Triumph TR4. And that car needed work. Yes, it did. I was really excited to finally have something, and I was looking forward to driving it to graduation and all the events that were going to take place afterwards. But I got it home, parked it in the garage. My dad let me park it there for a couple days since it didn't have a top at the time. And the next day when I went out to start it, it wouldn't start. The battery was dead. So I had a neighbor allow me to borrow his battery charger. So I put that on. I said, okay, I'll just charge up the battery, and the next day I'll take it to school with me that final day of the school year. And I went out the next day, and it still wouldn't start. So it wasn't just a battery. It was the voltage regulator along with a whole list of other things that I was soon to find out that the car needed. One thing, I couldn't drive it on the freeway. Well, I could, but I didn't. Because once I got it to about 45 miles per hour, there was this incredible whine that would come from the transmission. So I recognized, uh-oh, this is going to need some transmission work. So I never drove it on the freeway because I didn't want to get it up over 45 miles per hour. Now I mentioned the rattiness of the interior. The carpeting was pretty much shag carpet from a house that had been put in there. And since there was no top on it, it had been sitting out, hadn't gotten damp, probably with fog, maybe a little mist. I don't know how long it had been out without a top, but it's really moldy and mildew-smelling carpet. The seats, you could put your hand through the torn vinyl and through the metal frame of the seat all the way through to the back end and both the driver and the passenger seat. I remember just getting a beach towel and putting it over the seat initially. There was a hole in the trunk. In the wheel well, the trunk, there was a hole in there so you could see the tire, one of the back tires. The brakes had air in them, so you always had to pump them if you wanted to get any type of engagement in the brakes and get the car to slow down and stop. 
electrical system, well, it was a British car. I really don't need to say much more. Had the classic headlights dimming at idle, accelerate and got brighter. Uh, as I mentioned, there was a bad voltage regulator in addition to the battery and the generator needed to be replaced. It did have great oil pressure. That's one thing that my neighbor Dave mentioned when I took it to him the first time. He actually knew a little bit about the car. He knew who the guy was that owned it before. I remember him saying, oh, you bought the old TR4 sitting outside of the auto parts store. I was wondering how long it would take for someone to buy that. So he knew a little of its history and indicated it had a really good oil pressure, some of the best he'd ever seen, and indicated that the engine had most likely been rebuilt. It also had leaky wheel and clutch master cylinders. The window just never rolled up very well, especially the driver's window kept popping off the track. Another thing, though, that it had in its favor was its sound. So it had a glass pack muffler, and the sound that it made was quite exhilarating. One thing I would do quite often when driving, if I was going underneath a freeway overpass, I'd push in the clutch and blip the throttle a couple times and listen to that exhaust sound echo in the canyon of that underpass. And that was something that I quite frequently look forward to. As I mentioned, there was no convertible top, and so I had to get a new convertible top. So all of these items would be fixed, replaced, repaired over the next year, and I pretty much spent every spare minute, every spare dollar, every spare moment of thought and energy working on this car. And as much as I enjoyed it, after a while, it got a little tiresome constantly working on this. There was a number of times when I was either riding my bicycle or taking the bus to the community college that I was going to that fall. And it's one thing to have an old car that you're fixing up and repairing that you can put to the side and get in another car to do your daily driving. But when you're also relying on it to be your daily driver, it gets kind of old after a while. Wondering, okay, am I gonna be able to start it up and drive it to my destination? And when I'm there, am I gonna be able to get back home? So after owning it for just over a year and still having a huge list of things that I wanted to get to and having already spent a year and lots of money working on it, I decided that it was time to let it go and get something different. So this car that I had been wanting and desiring and hoping for for many, many years after just one year of ownership was let go. I sold it for about $1,500. So I did make a little bit of money, but if you count how much I put into it with parts and labor, then obviously that was a loss. But I did learn an incredible amount about working on cars and a lot of the idiosyncrasies attached to British cars. Now, I had taken an auto shop class when I was in high school, my sophomore year in high school, but I, I don't feel like I really learned that much in the auto shop class because I didn't know a whole lot going in but definitely learned quite a bit working on that car, getting tools. That was my graduation gift from high school. My parents bought me the $100 Craftsman Toolkit from Sears, and that is what enabled me to get started working on that Triumph. So I ended up selling that Triumph, and I replaced it with something so much newer. I went from a 1964 Triumph TR4 all the way up to a 1969 Datsun 2000 Roadster. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the Datsun Roadster had been on my list of cars I was interested in. And after I got rid of the Triumph, I decided I was gonna try the Datsun. 
Now, even though this is only four years newer, it felt like a leap in time from technology and modernity um, with this car. It had a five-speed transmission instead of the four-speed gearbox that the Triumph had, and I could take it on the freeway. It had overdrive, and I drove it on the freeway. I drove it quite a bit. It also had a top that was much more advanced and actually sealed up against the windshield. One of the issues I ran into with my top on my Triumph was I had tossed away the old top before I had purchased the new top and took all the parts off it. There was a couple of parts that I really needed to take off the old one and attach to the new one for it to seal properly. And I learned my lesson very quickly because that was really the first thing I did was buy that new top. And that was the first lesson I learned that I preach to this very day, that you never throw away an old part until you have purchased the new one, installed the new one, and make sure the new one is working correctly and not needing any additional parts that were on the old piece that you'd taken off. A couple other unique elements to the Datsun 2000 that I had. Now Datsun had both a 1600 Roadster and a two liter 2000 Roadster. And I had the 2000 one that had the single overhead cam. The radio was mounted vertically in that car. Now in most cars, you take a radio and you place it in horizontally, but the placement for the radio and the dots and roaster, at least some of them, was a vertical slot that was just in front of the gear shift lever in the center column. And I replaced the radio when I first got it because it didn't work. And it didn't take too long, probably about four to six months before the radio I just placed in it didn't work either. And I ended up replacing that with another one. A little while after I'd gotten rid of it, I'd read somewhere that it was the placement of the radio and those really required a specially designed car radio that was designed and built to be placed in that vertical position. Otherwise, you ran into problems, which I did, having to go through a couple of different radios in the two years that I owned the car. This car also had the battery in the trunk, so the previous owner had relocated the battery into the trunk to help distribute the weight balance a little bit better. But with the battery back there and the spare tire, there's really room for nothing else in that trunk. Also had some issues with the gas gauge. This wasn't Lucas Electrics, but it did have a faulty gas gauge. It went out probably about a month or so after I had the car. And I constantly was trying to reach back behind the gauge under the dashboard and would pull out the wire. And oftentimes it had this oily residue on it. So I would kind of clean it off and plug it back in. It would often work for two or three days and then it would stop working again. So after doing that a few times, I just kind of gave up on that. I would just figure out how many miles based upon the odometer I could go before I had to fill it up with gas. And of course, as a young teenager, oftentimes you're not paying that much attention to it. I did run out of gas a couple of times, but it did have windows that rolled up and sealed very nicely with the top. And the engine also burned lots of oil. It turned out there was some rings that needed to be replaced. That was something I never did get around to. So I had that car for two years. I had the Triumph for one year and had the Datsun for two years. And like I said, the Datsun felt like leaping forward in time a decade or two. I could drive it on the freeway. The top sealed. I had a five-speed transmission, and it had quite a bit more power. I believe the Datsun Roadster had about 135 horsepower compared to about 105 horsepower in the TR4. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're in that small of a car that's that light, it's pretty noticeable. 
Well, it came a time when I was going to be transferring from the community college up to the state university up in L.A. County, which I ended up going to. And my dad was really trying to convince me to buy something that was a little bit more new and a little bit more reliable and something that I didn't really have to do much to other than add gas and oil. Now, my dad was never a car guy. His philosophy was you go and you buy whatever the latest GM car is that you can afford, and you kept it for about four or five years. Once it get over 80,000 miles, you'd better get rid of it. And he was not a fan of used cars. He used to say, if you're buying somebody's used car, you're buying somebody's problem. There's a reason why they're selling it. Don't buy a used car because you're going to spend more time and money on it. So he was not a big proponent of used car, and he was definitely not a big proponent of foreign cars. Although he did not prevent me or put up too much of resistance every time I bought something new. But I had to agree with him if I was going to be commuting to school, which is what I ended up doing, which was, I believe, a 25-mile trip one way, so about a 50-mile round trip multiple times a week, I probably should not be driving something that's 20-plus years old that had the risk of breaking down or something wearing out because I couldn't take the bus or ride my bicycle to the new university that I was going to be going to. So I decided that it was time to let the Datsun 2000 go, and I was going to get something much more modern. I was going to jump at least 10 years ahead of that one, maybe even more. And the two cars that I had my eyes set on were the Mazda RX-7 and the Alfa Romeo Spider. Now, a very good friend of mine had a, I believe it was about a two-year-old RX-7, and I rode around with him quite a bit in that. I was really impressed by that car, so I had a great interest in acquiring an RX-7, but I still couldn't get the concept of not having a convertible out of my system yet. So there was an Alfa Romeo that I was really wanting to get, although that was a little bit more expensive, probably $1,000, $1,500 more than buying the comparable RX-7 that I had my eye on. I was able to sell my Datsun Roadster at the end of July that summer. And I had to make up my mind pretty quickly because the school year was going to be starting pretty soon and I was going to have to start making that commute up to Long Beach. I had to make a decision which of those two classic sports cars would I end up purchasing. Was it going to be the Alfa Romeo or was it going to be the RX-7? Well, I'll follow up with the answer to that question in the next episode of the Classic Sports Car. Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website theclassicsportscar.com. Please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.